Let's open our Bibles to the book of Malachi. And we're in the second chapter. We had one lesson before. Malachi means my messenger or the messenger of Jehovah. We're not told a whole lot about uh, Malachi except that he is God's messenger. We gave you a division last week of the book of Malachi. And I'll just quickly rehearse that for you. In verses 1 through 5 of the first chapter, you have Jehovah's love for his people, which we've already taught. And in the first chapter, beginning with verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9, it carries us through 2, verse 9, was the rebuke of the priests. And we're actually in chapter 2, verse 2 right now. We finish with verse 2. So that's where we'll pick up in a moment. But let me give you the remainder of the book real quickly. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, you have the rebuke of the social conditions of the people. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, you have the announcement of the messenger and of the day of the Lord. And in chapter 3, verses 7 through 15, you have rebuke for defrauding the Lord. That has to do with their tithes. And then in chapter 3, 16 through 4, 6, which is the remainder of the book, you have the remnant and the concluding prophecy. Now, right now, we're in the second chapter, verse 3, we'll pick it up, and it's the rebuke of the priest. In fact, you're going to notice how God rebukes the priest through Malachi here. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And now, O you priests, you see that? In 2, verse 1. Now then, in 2, verse 7, glance down there quickly. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge. You see how he's rebuking the priests for what they have not done? All right. So let's pick up with verse 3. And we're having to do with the thought of rebuking the priest. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Malachi, Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread your dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. God had made a covenant with Levi. What was the house of Levi? They were the priestly family, weren't they? You remember Aaron and his sons? And uh, the family of Levi was chosen to be this priestly family. And now, our priestly tribe, I should say, and Aaron was the, the priestly family, of course. Priestly tribe was Levi. All right, let's look at uh, verse 5. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for fear, wherewith he feared me and was afraid before me. In other words, God had made a covenant. He says in verse 6, The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and it turned many away from iniquity. Remember when Moses came down off of the mountain, and he broke the tables of a stone because the children of Israel had sinned against God. And Moses says, I want you to separate unto me those that fear God, those that want to stand with God, come over to me, come over to my side. He says, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. That was Moses' command. And all the house of Levi came, all the people. And, and they're the ones that executed uh, judgment that day on those who disbelieved God and remained unrepentant. For their sins, and many were slain that day because of their uh, disbelief. Now look in verse uh, 6 again. The law of truth, truth was in his mouth, and iniquity is not found in his lips. Verse 7. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge. Now it was different now in the days of Malachi, 
and they should seek the law of his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now then, look at that. The priests had corrupted their office and their duties and their responsibilities. And though this was true with Israel of old, we are tempted all along the way to find application to you and I this day and hour, and let alone in the future uh, time for Israel when they shall certainly need the knowledge of the Lord in the days to come yet, in the tribulation that I'm referring to. But right now, how would we make application of this to you and I? We ought to, as we're all priests, every Christian is a priest in his own right. The Bible says, Peter says, God has made you a kingdom of priests. In other words, you can go in to the presence of God now to the throne of grace where only the priest of the Old Testament went into the presence of God, you see. So every believer now is a priest in his own right. You don't have to have a priest to go in and do the work for you, do you? Or to make intercession for you. You come right into the presence of God in prayer and in worship. And everything, and you have a great high priest, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We are priests in our own right. Every believer, the preacher is not a priest for you. Any minister is not a priest for you, regardless of what uh, denomination he belongs to. He's not a priest. You're your own priest. You're, you're, you're responsible for yourself in the presence of God. Now then, the minister's business is to tell you what the Word of God says. And in that sense, we're still to keep the law of his mouth, but you're responsible as well to keep the law of his mouth, just as much as the preacher is responsible to keep the law of his mouth. So every believer is responsible now, and we need to take that to heart. What do we do about keeping the Word of God? We ought to seek the Word of God today, shouldn't we? Now look at verse 8. But ye are departed out of the way. If Israel was departed out of the way in their priesthood, like people, like priests, it said in the Old Testament, the people were just like the priests. In fact, when he was rebuking the priest, he was also rebuking the people because of the fact that they had departed. We said it was a rebuke to the, to the priests, but the rebuke is for the priests and for all the people as well. Now then, look at this. But ye are departed out of the way, ye have caused many to stumble at the law, ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Look at that. They had corrupted the things of God. In verse 9, Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but ye have been partial in the law. What does it mean, partial in the law? In other words, you have a marginal reference. It says, lifted up the face against or accepted faces. You know what that means? That means if a fellow here is in pretty good uh, social standing, instead of uh, being the same with that person as you would someone else. You show favor and partiality. And that's what he's getting at. And they were partial. You have been partial in the law. And then it says in verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Now this takes us to the second section of this chapter, which is the rebuke of the social conditions. What are the social conditions we're going to find here? Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Well, now Israel had one Father, didn't they? Of course, all of us are... God's by creation, but Israel had one father. He says, you're my sons, even my firstborn. Remember back in Moses' day, whom I have called out of Egypt? He was a father unto the children of Israel. And he says, have uh, we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man, look at this, against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why have we dealt treacherously? Now, in what way have they dealt treacherously? They said, we're brothers. 
We have one father. Uh, we're one family. We're one people. But let's see what they had done. I want to read verses um, 11 through 16 right now. Judah has dealt treacherously and... And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married, look at this, the daughter of a strange god, that married the heathen uh, women, the daughters of strange gods. The Lord will cut off the man, notice it's in the family, in the man, in the people, that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts, and this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. The wife of thy youth. Each one of them had married. They had forsaken the wife of their youth, their first love. They had married. They had put, put them away, and they had married strange women, or women from heathen nations round about them. The same thing in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find happened. There were multitudes of them that had done this very same thing. Now then, let's go on and read it. It says um, in verse 14, "...hath been witnessed between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant." In other words, the one you first married, she was to be your wife. And... Uh, you were not to put her away. She was your companion and the wife of your covenant, the wife of your youth. And did not he make one, yet hath he the residue of the Spirit? And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. God doesn't want you to put away wives. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Now what was happening? The priests were corrupt. The people were corrupt. The, they had come to take in, put away their own wives. In other words, the wife of their youth. By this time, she was wearied with the chores of the house. She was growing old or older. And these uh, Israelites were putting them away and getting them a younger wife. That's done today too, isn't it? Get rid of the old woman and go get a young one. That's what they do. Trade the 40 off for 220s. That's what a lot of them do. But anyway, regardless of that, that's th that was their sin. God, it was divorces, separations, wasn't it? All this was going on. And God says it was an abomination to him for them to do that. He hates putting away. He told them to take heed that they would not do uh, treacherously. In verse uh, 13 it says, And ye have done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and with crying out. Who was doing the weeping and the crying? These widows that had their husbands had gone after the uh, women of strange gods outside of the Israelitish nation and people and outside of Judah as well, Israel and Judah both. And they were gone out and taking them strange wives. You go back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. I won't have time to read too much of it. Let me give you a verse in Nehemiah. You don't have to turn to all these. If you have time, it's great. But it says in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughter, every one having knowledge and having understanding. They had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of, their, of God. Now then, in the book of Ezra, 
Let me just read the whole chapter, the 10th chapter of Ezra. Let me just read a couple of verses to show show you that it's there. Ezra chapter 10, verse 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Verse 11. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourself from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Ezra says you're going to have to separate yourselves from these heathenish women, wherein you have gone after them, because God had forbidden it. And he demanded that they separate from them. Ezra reformed the people, and they had to put away the strange wives. If you read in the latter part of the tenth chapter, it says, uh, And among the sons of the priests were found that had taken, it's verse 18, strange wives. And you got a whole list of people from verse 18 through 40, or through 40. Four, rather, 18 through 44, that tells you of all the priests and all the families that had married strange wives, and all of them were named, a whole list of them there. Now then, God's fed up with that kind of thing. And therefore the prophet is telling them of their social conditions, that their social conditions were corrupt. Now let's just try to sum it up and say this. What about the social conditions in our day and hour? From the time that you and I, well say, 20, 30 years ago, look at the increase of the divorce rate down through the years. Year after year, it just becomes greater. And now the marriage vow hardly means anything anymore. doesn't mean anything. In fact, they've got trial marriages. And they've got the idea that you hear them promoting it on television all the time. Women and men alike saying, well, you ought to, you ought to live with them a while first. One year, two or three years at a time. God's Word didn't say anything about that. If you study the Word of God, it tells you when a young man and young woman fall in love, that they're to get married. They're to be joined together, and they twain shall be one flesh. And Jesus said it was not so from the beginning, but because of the hardness of your hearts. Let me read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter, uh, let's see, chapter 19. Came to pass, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came to the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, listen to this, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They were doing it for every cause, putting them away. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore there are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why then? Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning it was not so. And so Jesus rebukes them for trying to find just any little reason to put away their wives. Now then, back in the book of Malachi, chapter 3. I want to hurry and give you as much of this as possible tonight. Let's pick up with verse 17. It says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, Wherein have we wearied him? How have we wearied the Lord? When you say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in, in them. Or, Where is the God of judgment? What were they saying? The people that were doing evil, they said, Oh, it's all right. It's good in the sight of the Lord. You find people justifying themselves on every hand today for every reason under the sun. 
They'll say, it's all right. Just go ahead. It's accepted nowadays. Put away your wives. It's all right. It doesn't make any difference. In fact, the moral standards are set by the popularity of whether a thing is right or wrong, and they call evil good or good evil. Never mind what God's Word says about it, whether it's right or wrong. But God's Word does say certain things are wrong. And He does say certain things are right. Where, when you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. And then the last part of this verse, in the last part of the second chapter, or where is the God of judgment? Is God going to do anything about it? Where is the God of judgment? Then the prophet Malachi in the, in the next chapter begins to answer where the God of judgment is. And in the third chapter, if you follow your Bibles closely, beginning with verse 1 through verse 6, he tells of the announcement of the messenger and of the day of the Lord. And the Lord is going to come, and he, he is going to be a God of judgment. He is going to come as a refiner's fire, as the Bible tells us here. But let's look at this section, verses 1 through 6, the announcement of the messenger of the, and of the day of the Lord. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. God says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he's going to prepare uh, my way uh, the, the way before me. Who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ? John the Baptist, right? All right, then it says, And the Lord whom you seek, the Lord, he's going to come, whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the covenant, the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, there's an announcement here both of the forerunner of Christ and the Lord himself that is going to come. He says, I'm going to send my messenger before me. And we know that when he did come the first time, that he did come to the temple. He cleansed the temple, didn't he? But that's not the, the complete fulfillment of all that Malachi has in view, though that is included. Christ did come and the forerunner came before him. But it includes another time when he will come and he will really judge. Where this connects you with the last part of the verse in the previous chapter, where is the God of judgment? Think of it a moment. In fact, that last verse of the second chapter could very well go right in with this. So follow it closely. And I realize I'm taking you fast because I wanted to give you all I could from this book tonight. But let's notice this. So in verse 2, 3-2, it says, But who may abide the day of his coming? Who can abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is what? Like a refiner's fire and like, like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. All right, let's look at some references. In Matthew 11, verse 10, I want you to get it. Matthew 11, verse 10, see what it says. It says this, For it is written, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He says in the next verse, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus says that that one is the messenger that Malachi is talking about is John the Baptist, right? That's what Jesus said. Let me give you some more references. Uh, in the Gospel of uh, Mark, chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness, preach the baptism of repentance for remission of sin. See, it's John the Baptist. Look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 76. 
Luke 1, verse 76, And thou, child, and this is Zechariah speaking concerning his son, John the Baptist, he says, And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. Thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. If you have Luke chapter 1, turn back to verse 15 through 17. You have Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord thy God, and he shall go before him. Now listen carefully to this 17th verse. It's very important. And he shall go before him. That is, John the Baptist shall go before Christ in the spirit and power of Elias or Elijah. Now, the name Elias or Elijah is very important here because John the Baptist was to go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. But we're going to find that the fourth chapter of Malachi tells us of Elijah that Elijah must first come before that great and terrible day of the Lord so that John, in a sense, was before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. But you read over in the book of Revelation concerning some one that will come, the two witnesses. One of them comes, and he is the one that will prepare that way before the Lord really comes in judgment at his second coming. So what we're saying here is that the prophecy here of Malachi and of Isaiah, we'll give you another one in a moment in Isaiah, look forward to the forerunner of Christ, but also look forward, that was John the Baptist, also look forward to the great tribulation wherein there would be the forerunner, Elijah, come before that great and terrible day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord come. You see, it has a kind of a twofold fulfillment. We'll get into that in a moment where the name Elijah is actually mentioned. Well, if you care to look at it right now, if you have Malachi, look at the fourth chapter. It says in verse 5, Behold, I will send unto you, send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You see that? Malachi 4, verse 5. He's really going to ascend Elijah. But Jesus said, Elijah has already come if you can receive it. Let's turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 27. Luke 7, verse 27. It says, This is he of of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And he goes on to say, among those born of women, John the Baptist he's speaking of. All right, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Let me read it there quickly. Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12. Listen. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Jesus is just telling them about his second coming. And he says, Why? Then say the scribes that Elias must first come. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you, now notice, Jesus didn't deny that Elijah would come and restore all things. But then he says, but I say unto you that Elias is come already, and ye, have, and ye knew him not, but ye have done to him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man uh, suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist, right? So he says, Elias has already come if you can receive it. He was saying that that prophet, that was that uh, forerunner of Christ, of which the prophet Malachi spoke, and so did Isaiah, we'll give that in a moment, did truly come. But Elias shall come first before that day of the Lord. So he's saying that is what I've been trying to tell you, a kind of a twofold fulfillment. John the Baptist, in the spirit and power we read of Elias, didn't we? In Luke 1, verse 17 in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we also read that where Elias shall truly come, in 
in the book of uh, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 that Elijah shall come first. All right, let's get back to this now. I said I'd give you one in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 says this. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. It says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now then, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This has been partially fulfilled in John the Baptist, but will be completely fulfilled when the day of the Lord comes. That's what I want you to see. All right, let's look at back in Malachi now quickly. In chapter 4, it tells you of how he will purify Let's look in Matthew 3.11 and see how he will purify. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. It says this, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now look at verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into his into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that that twelfth verse is not fulfilled yet. When he comes and he is the purifier and the refiner, then he's going to do that changing, that purifying at the coming of the Lord. All right, back in Malachi now. Malachi chapter 3 and verse uh, 4. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Only after the Lord comes back and purifies as he does, then will Judah and Israel be what God prophesies here. Never will they be that until this happens. In verse 5, it says, And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against the false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Look at that. God says, I'm not going to put up with all of these uh, sins and the oppression against the fatherless and the widow and the stranger that's turned aside from his right. What was it in the Old Testament? God said in the Old Testament that when you reached the field, you'd leave the corners and you'd leave, if you missed a little strip there, you'd leave that for the stranger and the poor and the widows, the orphans. You'd leave it, leave it for them. You know the wheat farmer? Have you ever seen the wheat fields cut and they miss a little strip there or they cut the corners and there'd be a strip around every corner that they make? That's not to be go back over. Now, most of the farmers go back and they'll run the combine back and forth. Of course, in, in these days, it may be different. Maybe they just give it to someone to help. If they do what's right, they would give some of what they have harvested to, to the poor. They would do that. But in those days of old, it was to be left so that the people that didn't have anything could come in and they could glean the harvest of that field. They could glean where the, after the harvest. That's what was in the book of Ruth, remember? Oh, Boaz, he says, not only leave the corners and, the, and those pl places that were missed for uh, Ruth, Boaz, but he says, leave also some handfuls on purpose. He was, she had found grace in his sight. Now, you and I are as the Gentile Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile. Ruth was a Moabitess. She had no right to anything. She was of a cursed race. She had no right to anything. But God, in grace, Boaz is a type of Jesus Christ. And you and I are a type of Ruth. 
We're Gentile believers, and God has left, Christ has left for us some handfuls on purpose. In other words, some gracious gleanings of salvation by grace through faith in Him and all the blessings that are because of it. We could go back and we won't have time to apply the book of Ruth, but just wanted to mention. Here, God is sick and tired of that way of doing in the book of Malachi. Those that oppress the hireling. You have verse 5? And uh, now look at verse 6. Six. He says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God could have consumed them because of their sins, but he said, I change not. What does he mean? He keeps his promise. He kept his promise to, to Israel and Judah all through the Old Testament. And otherwise, the sons of Jacob or Israel would be consumed. Because of their sins, they would have been consumed. God had made a covenant promise to them. And had it not been for that covenant relationship of God, they would not have been permitted to, to go on. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Verse 7 says, now then, verses 7, let me give you this. This is another section of our study. Verses 7 through 15 is a rebuke for defrauding the Lord. What we're about to study. He says, even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you. God says, if you'll return to me, I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, now look, they were so blind, they didn't realize how they had broken God's ordinances. But you said, wherewith shall we return? You know, have you ever talked to people and they're just as sinful as all get out and you try to tell them that they need to amend their ways and turn to God in these things? And they act like, well, what have I done? You know, so innocent, nothing wrong with me. I'm just as pure as is the angels of heaven. Brother, we're sinful and we need to turn back to God. And they said, wherein shall we return? Look at that. In verse 8, he says, will a man rob God? If you'd go rob a bank, that'd be bad, wouldn't you? If you'd rob a brother, if you'd rob a business place, that would be bad. But will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed? Look, everything that God tells them, they say, well, we don't know anything about that. We thought we were doing just fine. Now look, Wherein have we robbed thee? He says, In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Kind of like the days of Nehemiah. You know what Nehemiah said? You and I, if we were... To take this question, and I've heard many, or some, I should say, modern evangelists use it for a text. Nehemiah says, why is the house of God forsaken? And you know what we ordinarily think of? We ordinarily think of empty pews. People not coming to, to church, don't we? Why is the house of God forsaken? You know what was forsaken? The right of the Levites to their food because the people had not brought their tithes. And Nehemiah says, why have you forsaken the house of God? These sons of Levite do not have their food because you've kept it all and you've not brought in your tithes and offerings. And you go back and search it out and that's the context of that text of Scripture. And here, they had robbed God. But he says, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. He says, bring it all in the storehouse. And he says, prove me, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. You say, well, that was for the nation of Israel. God was speaking to the nation of Israel. But, if you remember, before the law ever entered, that the nation of Israel was under law to pay tithes, Jacob, 400 years before the law entered, 
gave tithes freely and willingly. Didn't he? Before the law ever entered. You look back in the book of Genesis. Let me give it to you. Chapter 28. Remember the law was given in Exodus what? 1920, long in there? Okay. Stop here. Genesis chapter 28. In the days of Jacob, it says... In verse 20 of the 28th chapter, And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. He says, Bethel, the house of God. And then what did he say? And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. He says, God, I'm going to give you the tenth. And Abraham, even before him, paid tithes unto Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is that priest which is typical of Christ. You read in the book of Hebrews that uh, Christ is not a priest after the order of Aaron and, and the sons of Aaron, but after Melchizedek, before the law entered. So then the application is to you and I that we ought to give our tithes and our offerings. All right? Back to this now. It says in uh, Malachi 3, let me give it to you, verse 10, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Do you do that? That there may be meat in mine house. In other words, support the ministry, the work of the Lord, the things of God, with your tithes and offerings. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. God is going to bless those the Bible says, if you sow sparingly in New Testament giving in the book of Corinthians, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now, you apply this to your giving as a Christian. And if you give liberally and cheerfully and bountifully, God is going to bless you. But if you sow stingily and sparingly, you go out here and sow a crop of wheat in the field. And say it takes a half bushel to, uh, acre to sow it. I don't know how much. Maybe a little less than that. But you say you sow in half bushel to acre. And you start reaping that wheat field and you get uh, you get uh, 12 bushels to acre. Maybe that was too little of seed. We're going to, on, on the assumption that a half bushel is too little, which it's about right. But anyway, say it's supposed to require three quarters of a, or a bushel to, to really sow it thickly. Okay. Say that you sowed half as much and you, you get out with... 10, 12, 15 bushels. And suppose you'd sold the proper amount and you ended up with 25 bushels to the acre. You know why? The amount of seed sown was not sufficient for the land to bring forth the fullness of the fruit. And the amount sometimes God's people give is not sufficient for God to open up the windows of heaven, so to speak, and pour out a blessing. I've been tithing ever since 1948. And I've never regretted it. And God has always taken care of me. You say, well, preacher, do you have more than you need? No, I don't have more than I need, but I have sufficient. God takes care of me. And I've seen the time that that uh, if you put to the test, people put it to the test, that they have less because of the failure to give God what is due him. If you want to be blessed, you give God the tenth and then offerings besides and see how God will bless you. You say, well, that applied to Israel. He's going to open the windows of heaven. That's true. But New Testament giving is in harmony with it because the Bible, I just quoted you a New Testament scripture that said if you sow sparingly, you reap also sparingly. Also, Jesus said, he says, give and it shall be given unto you. Now listen, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and what? Running over. Jesus said that. Didn't even have anything to do with the tithe. He just said, you give, and as you give, it shall be given to you good measure. You ever taken an old hundred pound gunny sack 
I used to sack up pecans. And you put those, those pecans in there and they're kind of loose, you know. And you start shaking it and you shake it down that far. And you can add another 20, 25 pounds sometimes in that 100-pound sack. And then you pull the ears over there real tight and sew them together. Well, you've got a, a lot of pecans in that sack. Good measure, shaking down and running over. And that's how God will give to you, the Bible says. Jesus said that. Another thing he says in here, verse 11, quickly, let's get it. He says, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I know that this applies basically to a time in the future when God will rebuke the devourer in the future for Israel. But let's, let's think of, about it a moment. It says, And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. I remember Dr. J. Harold Smith one time telling about he had a little old two-acre patch back there in Arkansas somewhere. And lo and behold, uh, the guy next to him, he had uh, bow weevils all over his cotton. And he hired a guy to come spray his cotton. He says, Now, uh, uh, Mr. Smith, I want you to pay for part of this spraying. He says, No, I don't want any spraying on my cotton. He says, Why? He says, uh, I'm a tither. He says, the Lord says he'll rebuke the devourer. He says, I don't need it. And so this guy, he hired his airplane and he come over and he sprayed, sprayed this field real good and the wind changed and it just saturated Brother Smith's cotton field. And so he did it, went back and he did it again. The wind changed again, just saturated the second time. Give it a second dose. And he called him up and he says, Mr. Smith, I want you to pay me for spraying your cotton. He says, he says I, I didn't ask you to spray my cotton. He says, well, the wind changed and it got all over yours. He says, you send God to build. He's got charge of the wind. I don't have any control over that. He said, lo and behold, he made a real good cotton crop. Well, sure enough, it does pay to spray. I'm not getting at that, but I'm just saying God has a way of taking care of it if you turn it over to him. So he says here, you know, if you do what God wants you to do, he'll make it fruitful and he'll bless you and he'll take care of you. And just as sure as we try to cheat God in some way or rob God in some way, we're going to find out we're going to come out on the short end of the stick in spite of everything. Now, you can take what I've said to heart. You can let it go in one ear and out the other. Or you can abide by it and do what God says, and you'll see the difference either way. You'll see the difference. So, I'm just telling you what God's Word says. And if you do it, God is going to bless you for it. If you don't do it, you're going to realize that you, if you sow sparingly, you shall reap also sparingly. All right, verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Now look, he says, your words have been stout against me. What have we spoken? Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You see, they never, never did recognize when they did any evil. God says, your words have been stout against me. What, what have we spoken so much against thee? You know, there's nobody so blind as a person that will not see his own sins. When God tells us we've, we've sinned and we say, Oh, I don't believe that. I, I just don't understand that. Well, there's none of us so blind. You know, Jesus said, If that light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? If the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? All right, let's go back to this. He says in verse 14, Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. It is vain to serve God. How many people have you uh, seen that say it's vain to serve God? I get along better than I don't go to church or I don't do any of God's work or I just uh, do what I want to do. I get along better than serving God. Now, you don't get along better not serving God. Don't ever try to convince yourself you do that. But it says, you said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. 
Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. In other words, we under, if, if we're to understand this right, we're to know that living for God, serving God, obeying God, keeping his ordinances, as Israel was told to do, as we apply it to ourselves, it will certainly bless us as well. If we give it a spiritual New Testament Christian applica application, the church will be blessed, the souls will be blessed, and the life, your life will be blessed if you'll just let God have his way. Now look at this, verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord, what did they do? They spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him uh, for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Those that feared the Lord. Those that would not do like the rest of Israel. You see, even then, though most of them would, were guilty of these things that we've just read about, the social conditions that existed and, and the, uh, their defrauding the Lord of his tithes and offerings, there were still a few that feared the Lord and spake often once one to another and hearkened to the Lord and heard his uh, word and listened to his word. And God says, I'm going to write your name down in a book. I know who you are. And then... They would not sympathize with the wickedness and the practices of their brethren. Now, what do I say for you and I tonight on this? I say simply this, that don't go along with those of God's professed Christians that are saying it doesn't pay and they go on and live without God. You go along with those that want to live for God. And if you will fellowship with those that want to live for God and speak often one to another, hearken to God's word, God says, I'm going to write your name down in the book. And then it says in verse 17, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts.